Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? First Corinthians chapter 12, and I'll read verses 1 through 11. Beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of God, and we pray he blesses the reading of it. We began a couple of weeks back looking at the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit and last week, we began to look at the, the relevatory or the miraculous gifts, what are sometimes called the apostolic gifts. And specifically, we looked at the gift of miracles and then the gift of healing last week. And just as a way of reminder, or if you weren't here, we made a distinction between miracles and miracle workers. We made a different a distinction between the fact that the idea of a gift of miracles or the working of miracles, or as it's literally translated, would be the working of powers, is something as a gift that we believe has ceased. That's not an argument for the cessation of miracles. It is a cessa an argument for the cessation of a miracle worker. We also looked at healing last week. And we made the distinction between the gift of healing and people being healed. And we made a distinction further that people are oftentimes healed through the prayers of the saints. That's distinct from one that has a gift of healing, which we have argued has ceased. And then this evening we get into perhaps one of the more crucial, I think just on a very practical level, for the church today, and not only how we, we speak and think about these things, but the type of language we, we even use when we're, we're talking, and that is the gift of prophecy. It's another, it says, to another prophecy. 
Now, there's usually two types of ways of understanding prophecy in and of itself. What is prophecy? Well, many of previous generations had considered that the prophecy here is simply that of preaching. In fact, William Perkins, the Puritan, wrote, a, wrote an entire book called The Art of Prophesying, which was a, a book about preaching. And so you could see, as some would say, this is simply expositing the scriptures and through preaching and teaching, it's that that prophetic gift. Uh, We would not disagree for a second that that is still a gift that's present today if one was to interpret this word here, prophecy, as just simply expositing and preaching and teaching the word. We would say, amen, God has gifted the church with teachers and preachers. I don't think that that's what this is saying, though. I don't think this is speaking about preaching and expositing the word. There is another way of of this, and you could think of it as forth-telling of something future, which oftentimes prophecy is that, or it can be a, an interpretation of a current event, and that is oftentimes what it is, but it's, it's new revelation that's spontaneous. In fact, that's how we, we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, In verse 29, it says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So it indicates that what Paul is talking about is something that's spontaneous. As someone sitting in the service, and a revelation comes about, and they're able to then speak that, that would be the prophecy. It would not necessarily be telling of a future event, but it might just simply be interpreting something. Currently, in Acts chapter 11... You see Agabus, who was a a prophet, and you see the spontaneous nature of it with him as well. It says in Acts 11, verse 27, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So in this situation, there's this, what what comes across as almost a spontaneous revelation about something that was going to happen. And then the apostles take action at that moment. And so as we think of what prophecy is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, It's new revelation from God that is spontaneous. Now, oftentimes we hear people will say something to the effect of, God told me. In fact, that language is used quite a bit. Now, when they say God told me, they're not usually referencing a chapter and verse in the Bible. And oftentimes the way that that's used as if they have received some sort of special revelation from God in a dream or something to that effect. Now, they would have to say then that they have the gift 
of prophecy. They would have to, if they have had something that is a new revelation from God that came to them, they would then have to then claim to be a prophet from God. We just have to understand what's being said when we say, God told me. So the question is, did God really tell that person something? You know, a lot of times we think this might be harmless and brush it off, but it's actually, if we understand this correctly, it may be something that we conclude needs to be rebuked. You think about the serious nature of a prophet. In Deuteronomy 18.20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or, he, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. That's the serious nature of prophecy. Now, if that's the serious nature of prophecy, and we see so many make wild claims about what God has told them, whether it's a famous preacher on TBN, or whether it's someone on the radio, or it's a sweet, faithful person that is confused about things that says, God told me. How do they get away with that in light of what Scripture says, in light of the serious nature of it? Well, I'm glad you asked how they get away with it. They reinterpret the prophecy in the New Testament from that of the Old Testament. They, the argument is that, well, in the Old Testament, prophecy and prophetic utterance was infallible. And so, therefore, if it was wrong, they would have to be killed. But in the New Testament, it's not that way. It can be a mixture of right and wrong. And you'll think, well, hold on, why do they think that? Well, you notice what I, what I already read, where it says that if there is a prophet there, others have to determine whether it's true or not. And so that was the whole point that this argument's made. And one, one person that makes this argument Grudem. Systematic theology that's used in a lot of different seminaries and is used in a lot of different churches. A lot of pastors have been trained under the systematic theology of Wayne Grudem. And, and I, I, I think, by the way, I'm not condemning him and saying he's not in the kingdom. I think he's in the kingdom. That's not my point. My point is, is that we have a generation of pastors that have been trained under that line of thinking, which is disconnected from actually the historic position of the church on this issue, that now think that, well, you can have a new the New Testament gift of prophecy, but it's not like the Old Testament. It could be, it could be fallible. Well, is that really true that it can be fallible? Well, if it could be fallible, why does Paul then say to test it? Why does he tell them that you have to determine whether that was true or not? And though the Mosaic judicial law does not apply, that is passed, it's been abrogated, um, so Paul's not going to say, test them, 
And then if they're wrong, kill them. They're not under the Mosaic Covenant. But he calls them to test it. So, can we say that the, the Old Testament prophecy is different than the New Testament prophet? There's no biblical reason to think that. And we have to see it as the same way. Now, a couple of things. We go back to the scenario God told me. If we believe that God is truth and perfect, then everything that he communicates is going to be truth and perfect as well. What do you believe about the nature of the Bible that was written by New Testament, we would say in some sense, prophets in some sense? No prophecy comes by man's will, but by the Spirit of God. So I'm afraid many may have said something like, God told me, and perhaps they confused impulse, an inner desire, good or bad. Maybe even they've confused what they have seen in Scripture that leads them to some sort of conclusion to say, God told me this. We have to be very careful. But why is it that prophecy is even given? Well, in 14.22, we see this. Paul writes, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. That's important. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So prophecy itself is something for the church. It's to be applied in the church. Paul also tells the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 20, uh, do not despise prophecies. Now, here's what he says, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Don't despise these, he says. So there's something in the, in, in, in the church. And so it was to, uh, to we, we're not to despise the unfolding of the will of God, is what Paul says. Now, why has this ceased? Let's consider a couple of reasons why I think that we should, we should hold to the position that the gift of prophecy has, in fact, ceased. Let me give you a couple, of, a couple of passages. If you're looking for a passage that says prophecy has ceased, it's not there. There's a passage that says prophecy will cease, 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect arrives. I believe what the perfect arrives is the new age with Christ coming. I don't believe that that's referring to the completion of Scripture. Some hold that view. I don't believe that that's what it's saying. But in Hebrews, we read this in verse 1 of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. That spoken is talking about a completion of, of revelation that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not a, it, we should not be expecting something further than that, but rather that what has been spoken is now spoken completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about what is written in Jude, in verse 3. 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And further, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. I understand, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 20. I know I'm going through these quickly, but I want to make a point after reading them. The, the, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, why, the, why these passages are so entirely crucial for us, if you look at the purpose of prophecy in the Old Testament, the purpose of prophecy was directing us to whom? To Christ. Is that now complete in Christ? It's totally complete in Christ. In fact, Christ understood the New Testament, I mean, the, excuse me, the Old Testament this very way. As we've looked at the Psalms, and anytime we've looked at the Old Testament, we've seen how it's pointing forward to Christ, and there's fulfillment of it in Christ today. So the prophecy was pointing forward to Christ, and Christ has come. Okay, now Christ has come, and Christ sees this himself. He says, or for instance, in John chapter 19, verse 36, it says, For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. And as you look through the Gospel of John, you see that phrase over and over again, that the Scripture would be fulfilled. So the prophecy of the Old Testament pointing towards Christ is realized in Christ. But there's other prophecy in the Old Testament that goes beyond Christ. What is that prophecy of? A new heavens and a new earth, the second advent. And what do we know about that? Well, very little. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. In other words, there's not going to be a prophecy coming that's going to come and tell us this is when Christ returns. I know that we sometimes laugh and joke about that. You think of those that have predicted when Christ is going to return. Not only is that a serious error, what have they just claimed? The gift of prophecy. And prophecy is supposed to be infallible. And what was the punishment in the Old Testament? It was death. In other words, one that does that is stands in need of rebuke. That's a dangerous thing to claim to know when Christ returns because one's assuming they have the gift of prophecy and that that gift is still active beyond the apostolic age. But what do we see in these passages? Prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. Well, why was there prophecy taking place after Christ? Well, you have the establishment of the church taking place. You have the confirmation of the church taking place. And then the church is established. We have no need of new prophecy. New prophecy actually undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. 
I, I know I have given this reference before, and I'll give it again, is that the, the book, Jesus Calling, Sarah Young wrote in the initial book, that the words of Jesus were not enough. And so she wanted fresh words from Jesus. She's claiming, or was claiming, she's deceased, that she has been given new words from Jesus. She's claiming that new prophecy, new revelation. And if it's new revelation and it's from Jesus, why would we withhold this from being added to the canon of Scripture? You see the implications of this idea of their following that there's new prophecy. Now, closely related to this prophecy would be that of tongues. And this is obviously a, a uh, controversial topic. And let me just say, I believe in tongues because I'm speaking with my tongue right now. Do I believe in the supernatural gift of tongues that's mentioned here? Well, let's examine what it is. And in order to deal with this gift, we have to understand what it is and what it is not. Let me just say very emphatically, what it is, is known languages. What it's not, is gibberish. What tongues is, as it's described in Scripture, and it's described in one place, Acts chapter 2. This is the only place tongues is described. It's not gibberish, but they're speaking a known language. You see this so clearly, verse 4 of chapter 2 of Acts, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 6, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Sometimes there's um, an interpretation that the gift was in the hearing and not in the speaking. I, I don't think that that's what this is saying because it's clearly that they were hearing them speak in his own language. But in order for the gift to be in the hearing, it would assume that the Holy Spirit had fell upon the multitude gathered rather than those that are speaking. And so I think that that's an erroneous view to hear that, see, the gift is in the hearing. I think the gift is clearly in the speaking. And what that speaking was is that they were speaking known dialectos. You know, you can hear that, dialect. It's a known language. So the tongue is the instrument, and tongue can mean two things in Scripture. It can mean tongue, physical instrument that we have, or it can mean a known language. Now, a lot of people will say, well, what takes place in 1 Corinthians is different than what took place in Acts. And that's an interesting way to, to look at it. It would be interesting because Acts was written between 62 and 64 A.D. So do this math with me. It's written around 62, 64. 1 Corinthians is written probably 
around 55 AD, around the time of Acts 19. Okay, so if it was something different, why does Paul not tell us that? Why does Luke not tell us something about that as he's writing after the phenomenon of 1 Corinthians, but actually uses the same exact language for it? So, assuming Luke is with Paul and no distinction is made, we have to interpret tongues as a known language. It's not a static speech. It's not gibberish. It's not mumbling. It's not some special prayer language. Paul himself identifies the purpose. In essence, he defines it in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 21, where he says, In the law it is written by a people of strange tongues, and by lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 28.11. How does Isaiah 28.11 think of the strange tongues and lips of foreigners? Notice what it says. And by the lips of what? Foreigners. In other words, it's a known language. In fact, Paul's quoting of Isaiah forbids any other understanding other than that of a known language. There's something we have to understand about tongues. And that is this, is that in the Tower of Babel, what took place? The division of tongues. And then you have a distinct people group that God chooses to bring about the Messiah. And then what does Jesus command his disciples to do? Go out into all nations, and what happens on the day of Pentecost? A reversal of the Tower of Babel in one moment. Is now where all nations are hearing the gospel themselves. This also... This idea that, that, that tongues is something for today, forget, forget for a second the gibberish part of it. I think that that's silly. But let's just, let's just say that there was an argument being made that tongues, where someone is given the gift to speak a foreign language that they had not previously learned, let's just assume that that was the argument being made today, but it's really not. But let's just assume it was. Would we say, okay, well, maybe that's, that's still happening. And maybe that's something that we can consider. Well, I think that that's what we would have to consider. But is it still taking place? Well, you think about this. As John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with his Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, then when we get to the book of Acts, what do we see? We see that taking place. Just as John the Baptist had said would happen. When you look at, in fact, you look at Luke 24, verse 47, 
and that we see this, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What happens when then Jesus instructs his disciples, go out into all nations, and he begins with Jerusalem. Why do you begin with Jerusalem? That's the city of David. Remember, they're Galileans. They're starting away from home. Why there? Because that's a city where the king rules. Then what happens? In Jerusalem, the gift of tongues comes. That's crucial. But then what happens in the book of Acts? Samaria, chapter 8. Gentiles, chapter 10. And then finally, the last holdouts of disciples of John the Baptist. So what is the book of Acts describing for us? It's describing different people groups in fulfillment of what Jesus commanded the disciples to do. And as each new group is reached, this phenomenon of tongues or some sort of accompanying gift takes place. And so the book of Acts is describing this history that takes place so that we see the establishment of the church takes place with the confirmatory gifts to reach these people. So, when we understand it this way, I think that there's a very strong case to make to say that people are not given the gift to speak uh, a known language that they've never learned before. What about interpretation? Well, of course there would need to be an interpreter. If someone had a tongue and, and spoke up and they were speaking to someone that could not understand, the rest of us would not understand what they're saying. And so an interpreter would need to be able to get up and interpret it. Otherwise, what does Paul say? This is not edifying for the church. And so it, you can imagine the scenario... Uh, that, that we had a, a group of people from France that came here, and none of us spoke French. And all of a sudden, someone stood up and was able to speak in French to them. That's, that was the picture of tongues in the church of Corinth. And what Paul is saying is, that's not helpful unless someone gets up to explain what it is that person's saying. Don't do it. And so the, the, the idea, again, coming back to this, the idea of gibberish is just simply not in the text. It resembles pagan uh, idol worship. I, 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 I was reading Tom Schreiner's book, Spiritual Gifts, which is a pretty good book on this, and he equated it with people that sing to themselves, that that's why they get into those ecstatic moods of saying gibberish, that it's some sort of self-soothing type of thing that takes place, and then they get wrapped up in it. I think that that's an interesting thought. Here's the other thing that we have to understand about tongues. How has the church understood tongues for virtually the last 2,000 years. They have understood it as a known language. Read the commentaries. Read the ancient commentaries. Read, the, read, read commentaries 
uh, from the Reformation and post-Reformation, they did not understand tongues as gibberish. They did not understand it as a static speech. They did not understand it as a private prayer language. And that's interesting that that has become so popular, that of it, well, it's my private prayer language that I do in my prayer closet. Well, gifts, we are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, are for the common good, for the edification of the church. Why are you withholding that gift from the church then to edify them? So where did these, these things come from? And I'm going to give you a brief overview, and we'll, we'll, we'll begin to look more deeply into this subject next week. In the second century, there was a man named uh, Montanus. And Montanus uh, went out and basically became a, almost a hermit, and he believed he had the gift of prophecy and tongues. And uh, he gathered a following. Even uh, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, became a, a follower of his. He also taught that the New Jerusalem would descend on his own village. And uh, he was condemned as a heretic. The church at large said this man is a heretic. He teaches false doctrine. And so they did So think about this, and this is wise of the church in the second century, and really how we should think about it as well. The church is looking at Montanus's teaching, and they're looking at his claims of special revelation and tongues, and they're saying, but your teaching's false and not consistent with the scriptures. Therefore, we're saying what you're doing is not real. One of, one of the, the, the phenomenons to me today is, is the fact that so many that would claim this type of teaching have such horrendous and sometimes satanic theology. So why would anyone take them seriously? But they do. There was many that would claim this gift throughout church history, but it was not common. Tongues became, a, as terms of a static speech, uh, became an interpretation with the rise of the Enlightenment. What was the Enlightenment about? The Enlightenment was about, if I can't reason this or observe it in nature, then it's not true. Well, what do we know about tongues? Tongues is supernatural. It's the ability to speak an unknown language or a known language without ever knowing that language. And specifically, German liberal theologians, as a way of discounting the miraculous, would view tongues as being something different because they saw that, well, it's still present in Scripture today, but because the supernatural can't take place, it must be some other way. As the emergence of that type of interpretation, George Smeaton writes this, they, that's speaking of those, those German liberal theologians, he says, they interpret the expression in the latter case as speaking in ecstasy. That is the modern German speculation devised to escape the full admission of the extraordinary miracle. That was written in 1882. And so you can see that this idea of a different way of viewing it 
was coming into existence but not held by a lot. Now, just so you know, German theology through German theologians changed in a lot of ways uh, the, the way the church thought about things. There, there was a group of, of theologians that came out of Germany that were incredibly brilliant and smart, but they began to see things as rationalist. What does a rationalist have to do? Well, they have to, they have to discount. It came to the States in 1901 through a man that believed he had gotten the gift and a woman that had, she believed that she had gotten the gift of speaking in the tongues. And guess what they believed about it? They believed they had the ability to speak in known languages. And so when, we'll learn more about her next week, but when they sent, sent Agnes Osman over to China to speak to the Chinese in a known tongue, guess what happened? They didn't understand what she was saying. And so when she came back to the United States, they reinterpreted how they understood tongues. In many ways, this became the birth of Pentecostalism. And so the faulty understanding of this was the birth of a, of a denomination. So, how do we understand this idea of gifts and, and those that would maybe claim to have those gifts? Well, first of all, I, I want to just be very clear. I don't believe this is a matter of salvation. I don't believe that someone that believes that the gifts are continuing is not a Christian. I'm not saying that. I think they have a wrong interpretation of Scripture. And I think that there's oftentimes that you meet people that might be a continuationist. They're really nice people. They're really faithful and pious Christians. They just have a wrong view. People oftentimes will ask, though, what about my experience? So what do we do with someone that by all accounts, seems to be a faithful, honest, true, and sincere Christian that tells you about experiences. And I can tell you, in my, my Christian walk, I've met a lot of people that have told me about experiences. What do you do with that? Well, the first thing is this, is we do not interpret the Bible according to our experience. The Bible must be the authority over the experience. So that, that's what we have to first understand. And so if I begin with my conclusion when interpreting Scripture, I will inevitably always read back into Scripture whatever I want. So, and the other thing is this, is I cannot explain, nor can you explain everyone's experience. Because everyone responds to circumstances in a unique way. Whenever someone has a tragedy... Whenever someone is in a very extremely stressful situation, they sometimes see things that weren't real or they forget things that were real. That's a reality of how our mind works in a fallen world. And so, when someone has an experience or whatever that experience is, I, I don't want to be dismissive to them but I also, I also want to be very careful about how we understand that. It's, it's also interesting, a lot of the experiences that people have 
really do not make much of a gift that's described in Scripture, but actually make very little of it. And it also, doesn't it take away if just every Christian that there is has these gifts and should expect them? What does that say of the nature of the gifts when Paul describes them as being so special? actually denigrates the gifts that we see. It makes, so the cessationist position, I believe, makes much of the gifts. And the continuationist position that says they're still active, I think makes little of the gifts. They're not really all that special if every Christian has them. Now, I think that also the one that has an experience that's outside of anything that you see in the New Testament, they have to explain why their experience resembles nothing found in the New Testament. Or they have to be consistent and say, it's new. And the Bible didn't talk about it, and it's a new way of understanding God's Word. I think that the biggest... Gift or the biggest concern of this issue over the relevatory gifts is the implication it has for one's view of the work of Christ in the Scripture. Remember, gifts break down into two general categories, service and speaking. I think that oftentimes the idea of a continuation of these things affects how we understand the Scripture. You think of it this way, that the Bible is clear that the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Holy Trinity, not a force. His role is to exalt Christ. And when gifts become the focus, one's relationship with Christ is overshadowed by the desire for an experience of whatever that experience is. Our contemplation of Christ on his completed work and upon the cross and his ongoing mediation on our behalf is disturbed when we reflect upon ourselves and think about how we want something. And any gift we're given must be pointing back to the reality of Christ and his completed work for us. And the implication upon the Bible is this, is the Bible's not enough. But, but here's the thing is there's not a fresher word or a more relevant word than the word that you're holding in your hands right now. And it will never diminish. Goods and kindred may go, but the word of God abides forever, as Martin Luther said. So as we look at these gifts, let us take seriously what the Scripture teaches about them and let that be our measurement of how we evaluate these things today in the church. And let us make much of the gifts and not make little of them as we consider this. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have certainly gifted your church. We see the fruit of your spirit of love, joy, and peace and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. What wonderful fruit the Spirit gives the church. May we desire these things. May we desire the work of your Spirit in, in the life of our 
lost loved ones and seeing them regenerated and born again by that supernatural act of being born from above. Father, we pray that your spirit would bring these things and exalt Christ in our lives. We pray your spirit would work in our hearts so that we better understand your word and convict us of sin when we are in need of it. And Father, may we as a church always desire the fruit of the spirit working in us and the gifts of the spirit of service and preaching and teaching. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, take your hymns of grace and turn